Hello and welcome to Climactic, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasters from across the range of the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. Every week on Climactic, rain or shine, we either produce or feature an episode of a climate-engaged podcast. This could be from one of the shows on the Climactic Collective or beyond, and you'll always find a link to the show we're featuring at the top of the show notes. My name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective and of this show. And if you ever have any questions, I'm always reachable at hello at climactic.fm. This introduction was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge this is stolen land, and sovereignty was never ceded. This week's episode of Climactic is from Nourishing Matters to Chew On, which is your go-to resource for all things food, adaptation, food systems, nutrition, and food sovereignty. This is an especially good episode, and of course I'm going to say that, but I've just finished editing it, so I'm very deep on what was in this episode and, and why I think you will enjoy it. In a time of food scarcity, and we've talked about this last week as well, but it's worth two weeks on at least, in a time of food scarcity, it's incredibly important, of course, to know where our food comes from, but also in ensuring that food is culturally appropriate, that we know how to use the food we have access to, we know how to prepare it in ways that are both nutritional and nourishing, and at a time of increased disaster response, the need to recover from natural disaster, What role does permaculture have in that? And I was quite surprised to learn that permaculture can actually be quite a big part of disaster recovery. This chat will also get into some of the darker sides, or at least some of the drawbacks with the predominant kind of permaculture culture. This is a chat between Anthea and Alex, who've been around or part of permaculture for decades. So it's really interesting, and they they both definitely have their eyes open about uh, the kind of culture that permaculture can breed, as well as the benefits of permaculture and its working with nature rather than against it ethos. It's a wonderful episode. I'm going to wet your whistle now with a quick quote that I found especially good, and then the episode will start with a cold open that Anthea selected from the episode as well. So buckle in, Catch more of Nourishing Matters to Chew On if this is your first or your first episode in a while. Season 3 has just launched. We're two episodes in. It'll be coming out fortnightly or thereabouts uh, for the next few months. So catch it while it's hot. Any recommendations for other episodes we should feature on Climactic, please just drop me an email to hello at climactic.fm. Stay well, stay safe, and I look forward to having you back again soon. Enjoy. 
Regenerative agriculture and permaculture claim to be the solutions to our ecological crisis. While they both borrow practices from Indigenous cultures, critically, they leave out our worldviews and continue the pattern of erasing our history and contributions to the modern world. While the practices sustainable farming are important, they do not encompass the deep cultural and relational changes needed to realise our collective healing. Please look for high quality credits that really put an emphasis on the co-benefits to communities, that really protect Indigenous rights, that support local livelihoods. Um, because if you are essentially buying the lowest price credit you can get, all you're buying is a plantation somewhere with all of the ethical conundrums that come with that. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. In this episode, we dig into the idea, practicalities and changing approaches to food security and community development work in extreme and remote situations. When you live on or in an island of sorts, such as Alice Springs, or work with people who live on islands and face extreme challenges to their livelihoods and food traditions from climate change and more. I'm speaking with Alex McLean, who has deep community development experience in Asia Pacific and Central Australia. Over the past decade plus, Alex has worked with many communities in the Northern Territory, with prior experience in East Timor, and now with small island developing states and communities in Polynesia and Micronesia with a really exciting NGO called Nakao. Welcome, Alex, and thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Anthea. It's such a pleasure to catch up with you and to talk about your insights and reflections from years of island and island-like experiences in places tropical, temperate and arid. Absolutely, yeah, lovely to be here. Alex, we first met at the Permaculture Convergence in Cairns in 2010, and I think you were then freshly back from East Timor working with Permatil with Lockie McKenzie, who we both know. Since then, you've lived in Alice Springs and worked on many great things, community, environmental and food security related. To lead us in, can I ask you to tell us about yourself and perhaps, you know, a bit of a broad brush overview of the work you do, the approaches you um, bring to that work and what motivates you to work in the spaces that that you've made such huge contributions in? Yeah, thanks a lot, Anthea. Um, So I guess uh, the work that I've been doing over um over the past as you say 10 or more years i think um 2008 was when i first headed off to to east timor uh to start working in this kind of field um really what what interests me is um is food systems and uh and uh, sustainable food production and um that's always been an interest of mine Um, i've been uh, interested in and, and working in permaculture for for 20 years or more but um, I think uh, what really uh, what really sort of uh, got me going and, and the place where I, I felt I really kind of found what interested me was when that came together with community development in an international development setting. So the real light bulb moment for me was seeing the work of groups like Permatil and Ego Lemos and of IDEP in Bali, 
really seeing how permaculture and community development uh, came together and made so much sense uh, in terms of building sustainable food systems uh, with some of the most marginalised and, uh, and impoverished people uh, and their communities. So that's always interested me and really, uh, I guess, been the common thread and common motivator for me through working in East Timor, uh, in Central Australia, um, where working on these issues is not easy. Um, but then more recently, going back to working in the international development space in the Pacific, in Tuvalu and in a related field in, uh, in Vanuatu, where I now work with Indigenous rangers on forest protection projects that ultimately end up supporting livelihoods work um, that impacts on people's food security, but uh, I guess the the core of what I'm working on there um, with my current employer, NACAO, is uh, forest protection and carbon markets. Um, so yeah, I guess it's really those, uh, those few threads that come together that really uh, interest me um, in the work that I do. And you're doing your current work from Alice Springs, is that right? That's right. Well, yeah, COVID era. Um, we can do these sorts of things now. Uh, although I must say, uh, the reason I ended up with NACAO is because um, my boss, so Robbie and Angeli, who established NACAO, had always been working remotely on a pre-COVID. And I remember uh, Robbie working here in Alice Springs on it for years and years and, and, and travelling out to the Pacific a couple of times a year. So I've really just sort of picked up the, the mode of working that he's always done. And it, it just seems to be relevant to the COVID era now. What, what first drew you to community development work and how did it all begin? Did you start in Australia? or overseas, did you do a degree or did you work with community groups? And were, were there family or childhood influences that, you know, led you down that path? Well, it wasn't so much family or childhood influences. I, say, I would say it's very much my wife, Rachel. Um, she has a social work background and um, the two of us, when, uh, from when we were first a couple, uh, we were always involved in environmental activism on climate change and peak oil. Uh, we were uh, involved in um, getting the Wilderness Society re-established in, in Sydney after years of, uh, of not being there. And at that time as well, one of the first projects that the Wilderness Society got going was um, Backyard Permablitz. And so we were really involved in that and um, were running some of the first permablitzes in, in Sydney. Uh, they've been running a lot longer in Melbourne. Permablitz have been really successful in Melbourne for, for several years at that point. But I guess these were always areas we're interested in, particularly from an activist point of view, um, and certainly the really early days of, uh, of climate change activism around the year 2000 and, and peak oil activism and things like this. I guess it was uh, later on, once, uh, once we started to have a family, that we decided we wanted to do this uh, professionally. And both of us went back and studied the Masters of Community Development. Mm. At that stage, I would say I wasn't particularly sure what I wanted to do with it. Uh, and I was looking around at community development jobs that were interesting, but I could tell just weren't really uh, me. And it, like I say, it was when I really saw um, groups like IDAP and Permatil yeah. uh, combining permaculture and really good grassroots community development that uh, the light bulb went off for me. And uh, I just thought that's the space I want to work in. When were those first perma blitzes in Sydney? Look, that would have been around um, 2005. 2006, that kind of time. Uh, our oldest boy, Oscar, was very young at the time. So, yeah, that would have been 2006 or so. You mentioned NACAO and obviously they're largely about carbon and com uh, community-led uh, ecosystems, protection and restoration and so forth, clear links to livelihoods and, and well-being. Would you like to just talk a little bit more about what you're doing in the food space with them? 
To be honest, with Dachau, the work in the food space is, is often secondary. It's once communities are able to start generating income through carbon markets by protecting the forest on their uh, customary land, that they're then able to use that income for all sorts of things. And uh, we run quite a thorough community development process with them, a community development planning process with them to identify what they want to spend their income on. Uh, and some of those projects end up being food security focused. Um, things like um, agroforestry plots uh, on the forest margin that's being protected, which they can produce crops such as cocoa or breadfruit or, or coffee or, or these sorts of things. Particularly in the Pacific where we work, there tends to be a lot of um, carver produced for local markets. And I guess part of the advantage of that is the market's right there. You're not having to process and store for a, for a national or international market. So yeah, these are the kind of projects that, uh, that um, tend to, communities tend to want to choose uh, when it comes to uh, food security. Sort of agrobiodiversity on the fringes of their forests that complement their forests. Yeah, very much, very much, that's right. And um, yeah, particularly when they're already, uh, there's so much um, organisational infrastructure set up around protecting the forest. Um, you know, often there's a, a, a ranger group established, there's a company there to manage the income. It makes a lot of sense to be establishing livelihoods that are um, working on the forest margin, protecting the forest margin, but also benefiting from all that social and organisational infrastructure that's there, rather than setting something up that's physically and, and sort of organisationally removed from the whole rest of the project. You said something about the great model that NACAL have around local staff and capacity building, that people are really skilled up on the ground and that it's not sort of like a, you know, there's no fly in, fly out and COVID doesn't allow us to do that anyway, but um, that, that you had a really sort of clever model of developing offices and teams of people on ground in, in situ who can be there throughout disasters and recovery times. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. So um, NACAL uh, was originally a project of an organisation called Live and Learn Environmental Education. And now that NACAL is a separate company, it's owned by Live and Learn as the sole shareholder. We work quite closely with Live and Learn's offices across the Pacific. So, for instance, um, in Vanuatu, where I manage NACAL's programs, Live and Learn Vanuatu is essentially our on-the-ground partner who do all the on-the-ground implementation of community engagement, all of the community planning and land use planning, all of the benefit sharing consultations and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the things that Live and Learn have found recently in, the, in uh, the last two years of COVID lockdowns, when a lot of other international NGOs have really struggled to continue functioning because they can't have international staff traveling to the field or, or vice versa, the fact that Live and Learn has a really strong network of, uh, of, of local officers who are all actually individual organizations that are affiliates of Live and Learn, they're not just a, an office of, uh, it means they've been able to function and continue to deliver their work uh, really effectively, whilst a lot of other NGOs haven't. And NACAL, through benefiting from that, is also able to continue working at community level. Uh, and in countries where Live and Learn isn't present, we work with other local NGO partners. My experience of working on, on partnership models with NGOs goes back to the earliest days in East Timor when I was working there. Uh, and I've seen a lot of different models of it. Um, usually it does work uh, very well because you're working with local capacity. Uh, but there are pitfalls. And, and I would say uh, from what I can see of the NACAL model, 
it really is uh, looking to build capacity at the lowest levels so that um, Indigenous communities are in control of their own land and forest resources and local NGOs and civil society that are supported to accompany them uh, really have the skills and the time and the resources to, to do it. Um, I think one of the, the biggest things that really helps flip it in favour of, of uh, local community uh, landowners is the fact that um, with these uh, carbon market funded projects, whilst there are some genuine philosophical questions and some practical questions that need to be answered, and there are some valid criticisms of the model, um, the fact that you're turning what would have previously been a three to five year grant funded program into now a 30 year market funded forest protection program really puts the local community uh, in the driver's seat as long as their rights are protected and as long as they are uh, empowered to do so. It means that they are then uh, supported for 30 years. Any investments they make are going to run for 30 years. The idea of capacity building, the support around them is so much a better investment because you know the benefit will flow for 30 years. So I think that's a real game changer for me uh, in terms of the whole development paradigm. The fact that development has been so short term in terms of its funding has been a chronic issue for decades. And I've spoken with many NGO leaders in, in developing countries who would call it a low risk, low reward approach on behalf of the, um, the developed world. You know, basically we don't trust you with that money, so we'll only give you a year or two at a time. And it means you basically lock in poor results and it's a self-fulfilling pro uh, prophecy really. So yeah, extending these projects out to 30 years just makes a massive difference. If there were insights from your work in the Pacific that really resonate with your work uh, with the Central Australian communities and we'll, or, or highlight the need for different lenses or approaches, and you've already just highlighted one, which is this question of mm. longevity of, uh, mm. of governance and funding and uh, local capacity building, which, you know, a 30-year time horizon on a long-term project is, you know, it's just ground-changing, as you say, and something that has been very problematic in in remote Australia, historically at least. Absolutely. Let's talk more about food security and your work in East Timor, Central Australia and the Pacific. People's ability to access a reliable supply of culturally appropriate nutritious food is integral to food and nutrition security. And over the years, many projects have incorporated permaculture approaches for resilience, affordable local inputs and all the other good reasons. And nowadays there's a shift toward more Indigenous agroecological ways of thinking and working. And of course, local food is as much about hunting and fishing as about growing food or harvesting bush foods with, with those sort of, you know, caveats. How important or effective were permacultural approaches in the work of Permatil and, and how was it received and taken up by people in East Timor? Well, I think in East Timor's food security context, the work that Permatil were doing was very effective. Uh, if you ask me. I think it was always very small scale because they were a small NGO only able to work in a limited number of communities. But the particular food security profile that was present in, uh, in East Timor um, is actually quite different to say Central Australia or one of the countries I'm working in a fair bit at the moment, Tuvalu, which is a, a separate piece of work to the NACAR work. But, um, and I guess what you tend to see in East Timor is, is probably more your classic developing nation food security issues. Yes, nutrition is a big issue, uh, but also just uh, volume of food that people are able to access is an issue. And so the kind of problems you see are things like malnutrition and stunting uh, amongst children, 
and uh, the kind of uh, uh, key markers of, of whether people are eating well or not tend to be things like um, number of meals per day and um, diversity of uh, food types that are eaten. Um, there was a high reliance on imported rice that tends to uh, mix the models of food insecurity that I'll talk about in, the, in a moment. Um, so that was certainly a big issue. But by and large, there was a much higher proportion of people um, in East Timor who were subsistence farmers and, and reliant on their own production for, for what they were eating. And so the kind of food insecurity they, um, they faced was really a product of the kind of agriculture they had the ability or the capacity to, to actually undertake on their, on their property, on their bit of land. So permaculture resonated well with subsistence farmers. It did, yeah, definitely, because um, a lot of the factors that they were facing were environmental limits, things like um, decreasing soil fertility because of erosion due to the, the complete deforestation of East Timor. You know, successive uh, Portuguese and Indonesian colonial regimes had really stripped that country of all of its native forest, and there's very little untouched native forest left in East Timor. And as a result, farmers are, are working on you know, decreasing soil productivity. If you look at what the key limits are, you know, why people aren't cultivating more land to produce more food, it's things like, well, farmers would say, we can clear more land, we can plant more land, we can harvest more corn. What we can't do is deal with the greater number of weeds that come with that. So it's an environmental limit like that and a lack of access to labour that was a key limit for them. From that point of view, the kind of work that Permatil was doing, where it was focusing on um, intensive increases in, in production through using environmental approaches to increase soil, soil fertility and productivity, was really relevant. You know, people could work less and, and produce more through things like putting in swales and earthworks, putting in um, uh, alley cropping amongst uh, chop and drop uh, nitrogen fixing plants and things like this, many of which approaches weren't entirely foreign to them. It was taking things which were already partly present or already present, training people to combine them in ways that would increase their productivity. I mean, that really has sort of always been permaculture's approach anyway. You know, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren would readily admit that they didn't invent very much of what was in permaculture they just read an awful lot and saw an awful lot and, and their real uh, brainwave was to bring it together into a coherent system that addressed the particular environmental and social issues that they saw. As part of building up soil and building on people's pre-existing skills but just, you know, scaling it a bit um, and getting more nitrogen into the soil and helping build up soil, were you working with small animals quite a bit from a protein perspective for diets but also the role of animals in helping like chickens and uh, goats and so forth to, to, to help build up soil? Yes, but I think it was um, often a step back from that. Um, it was how can you work with particularly goats in the more mountainous areas of Timor to be able to uh, stop having them roam across the entire landscape and concentrate them on a particular area. In the flatlands, it would more be cattle. And yeah, how can you concentrate them in a particular area, look after them there, provide for their needs there so that you're not degrading the rest of the landscape? Mm. <laughs> Often burning large stretches of, uh, of farmland, particularly uh, late in the dry season, was a key strategy goat farmers would use to produce green fodder for their, their goats. And while it's really important to do that to keep goats alive late in the dry season, it's also incredibly detrimental on the landscape as a whole. So it really is a negative coping strategy. 
And so the work that Permatil were often doing is how can we concentrate goats onto just particular parts of land and look after their needs there so the rest of it can be restored and stop being burnt. So it's that relationship between livestock, fire and fertility that they were often working on. Uh, and it was actually quite difficult to work on. Um, these were seen as really key survival strategies for communities and had been the case as far back as they could remember. So asking them to change what's essentially a, a successful survival strategy is a big ask for a very poor, vulnerable, remote community. Yeah, yeah. Cell grazing for goats. Exactly. Something similar to that. Perhaps not quite as, uh, as developed as the cell grazing method. You know, the Savory Institute's fantastically developed. But, yeah, similar approaches, yeah. So these are people who are just living survivalism pretty much day in, day out. And, of course, permaculture and permatil have mm. been doing really important work in disaster zones, uh, recovery from extreme events. And your colleague from those days, Lachlan McKenzie, has gone on with permatil and to write the really fabulous Tropical Permaculture Guide, which is, you know, very much for, for the tropics, um, that's being really widely used and has been a vital resource for communities recovering from natural disasters. And I'm thinking particularly of Aceh and after the tsunamis when those islands were just wiped out. Would you like to comment on that at all? Yeah, certainly. I, I um, found that a really interesting, I guess, context that permaculture was starting to be applied mm. in. Uh, mm. At the time, I didn't think of permaculture as having much of a relationship to disasters, just because that's not where my thinking was at. And certainly when I first turned up in East Timor and, and met Lockie and became good mates with him and then was given the what at the time was the, the Timor Permaculture Handbook, I just devoured it. Uh, I thought it was such interesting, relevant uh, information. And then to find out uh, about the way it was being applied in, in um, disaster context was really fascinating. Now, it's often less about the immediate humanitarian response. Mm. Um, I think that's perhaps not where permaculture has as much to offer, although there certainly are people working in that space with um, modular housing and, and composting toilets and, uh, and modular garden beds and food growing pods and the like. Uh, but I think where it really comes into its own is in the rebuild phase, where you're helping people rebuild their lives and livelihoods and particularly doing it in a way that increases their adaptive capacity against the next set of disasters that they will face. So things like, you know, I think the value of mangroves are really well established now in terms of their ability to, um, sure, protect coastlines from erosion, but also protect coastal communities from tsunami. And in particular, places where mangroves were immediately backed by well-established bamboo forests or, or other sorts of forests, these were the communities that were the best protected. And so bringing those kind of observations into the design and thinking of how you're going to help a community rebuild that uh, rebuild phase, um, yeah, that's where uh, permaculture in places like Arche became really valuable. It was really well accepted in, in, in many communities in Arche. That was some of uh, EDEP's highest profile and best work, really. It was... Uh, very interesting projects. So it's actually quite sort of landscape scale, uh, green infrastructure for disaster. Absolutely. And, and often where land is customarily owned by whole communities, you can approach this at a much more landscape scale than is the case in many of our communities where land is privately owned by individual families and to piece together that amount of land is, is more difficult. I was going to ask if there are similarities or key lessons from your work in Timor that you've drawn on in your work in Central Australia. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I think there's a lot of thinking that I brought into the work in um, Central Australia that directly came from my time in Timor. I think the first thing I realised was just how different the contexts were. 
And in fact, before I moved to Central Australia, I remember having a long discussion with my brother who at that stage had worked uh, with Aboriginal communities in far western New South Wales for many years. And I was just saying, I just don't know if the work that I do is relevant uh, in, in somewhere like Aboriginal Australia, uh, in remote Aboriginal communities. Once I actually arrived here and started working with Aboriginal communities, what I found was um, food insecure communities uh, need a whole range of solutions to their food insecurity that they face. And one of the biggest issues that leads to people like me thinking, oh, I don't know if this is relevant here, is that the development context in um, Aboriginal Australia or the way that non-Aboriginal people undertake development in Aboriginal communities is very narrow. And it's, it's, it's a very limited lens. It's often very unaware of the colonial baggage that it carries. And it's very cut off from the international development scene. So there is very little cross-fertilisation between those two communities, much more to the detriment of the development scene in Aboriginal Australia than the other way. And so what, uh, what I realised was if you wanted to work on uh, local food production in Aboriginal Australia, it was frowned upon, it, you were told it didn't work, and people immediately assumed that you were working on community gardens. <laughs> yes. Um, there was no concept that there were any other ways of working on local food production than community gardens or CDP projects, right? So government-funded welfare projects. So really, um, I'd already seen in East Timor that community gardens in remote East Timorese communities and even demonstration plots in remote East Timorese communities were more of a limitation on um, addressing food security than they were a solution. They weren't negative, but if you only stayed there, which many projects did, you never actually addressed the food security issues. You never broke out of the demonstration plot and got into the field with farmers and talked to them about the issues they're facing there, right? Or you never broke out of the demonstration plot and actually got into the kitchen garden um, with the mum who's trying to cook food for her family and find out what it is that she needs. So it was a similar kind of issue writ large here in Central Australia. And I think because of that, what happens is you tend to have very few people who are actually qualified and experienced addressing food security from a non-nutritional, non-shop-based perspective. So there are a lot of very good nutritionists and dietitians working on food security in Central Australia, and their work is fantastic. Uh, I absolutely support it. Uh, there's a real dearth of people who are working on food security from a horticulture, local production point of view. Anybody in that space tends to automatically get sucked up into the commercial food production and CDP sector. And in fact, um, possibly not even CDP, because what happens is in the CDP sector is you'll have a well-meaning, interested amateur come along and say, hey, you know what we need here is a garden, assuming that gardening in a remote Aboriginal community can't be that different to gardening at home give it a crack, it might work for a season or two, inevitably you hit issues. Uh, primarily the biggest issue that you hit is that white person then moves on. And then who really owns the garden at that point? You know, we all talk about ownership of projects. I think there's sort of this uh, implied idea that, you know, if you move on, everybody, all of the Aboriginal people in the community you're working with are sort of looking at the garden, scratching their head going, what does it mean that the white person left the garden here? Um, who owns it now? You know, should, should I be, should you be looking after it? You know, and when you hit issues, you know, everybody hits issues in gardening, in food production, uh, every project hits uh, challenges. And if you really haven't set people up to, to have the support they need 
to be able to address those challenges, then you're setting them up for failure. Yeah, I was going to say the food security work that, that um, we did through the Arid Lands Environment Centre for almost 10 years, it really was based on an approach that you have to continue working with Aboriginal people in an ongoing fashion. You need to accompany them, you need to support them, you need to train them, and that needs to happen for years. So we inherited a, a really great food security project uh, in the Utopia homelands uh, called the Amurna Food Gardens Project. Uh, Amurna Murda is um, Ariawara language for good food, essentially. And that had already been running for several years, set up by some uh, permaculturalists with a good knack for community development up there. It was taken on by um, a, a dietitian who we worked with for years, uh, Ingrid Fyland, who, again, uh, she just had a real instinct for permaculture, even though her background was uh, dietetics and community development. And when we came on board, uh, they were really into the way that we worked, which was, yeah, we need to continue supporting these communities. And it really wasn't until you got to, you know, eight years, 10 years of support that, that you started to see more and more gardeners actually able to do this without your support. So it's those kind of timelines that are required. If you're just going to come along and give someone a garden and walk away, you're setting them up for failure. Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely there was a thread of thinking through East Timor into, into what I was seeing in Central Australia. So those linkages of uh, deep development sort of methodologies and, and strengths-based solutions together for a good duration, which does, as you say, link with public health and nutritionist work around community-led solutions, but mm. it needs longer than three years or a one-year grant. That's right. Okay, so... Uh, what about some of the broad similarities or perhaps differences that you see in the food security profile of remote Aboriginal communities and small island developing states? You mentioned Tuvalu and some others. Yeah, well, this was a real interest to me once I started working in Tuvalu about two years ago um, with Live and Learn Environmental Education. I occasionally do contract work with them. Uh, and they're doing some really interesting work there addressing food insecurity and uh, the impacts of climate change, particularly the impacts of rising sea levels on and saltwater inundation on traditional agriculture. Mm. Um, their traditional mm. agricultural system is called a palaka pit, where, uh, and it's common across uh, many parts of Micronesia and, and the Pacific. Essentially, you break through the, uh, the, the, the limestone rock in the coral atoll that you're on and get down to the water level, and then you compost in the water level and, and produce a swamp agriculture pit. And primarily what they're producing is giant swamp taro called Pulaka in, uh, in Tuvalu. So a swamp taro can grow in slightly saline water, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, often the water is not saline. It's, there's a freshwater lens, so they're not in seawater. They're in the freshwater lens that hangs beneath the surface of most coral atolls. And they're essentially breaking through the limestone layer to get to that freshwater lens mm. um, and producing these like seriously enormous taro. Um, you know, some of them taking several people to lift and things like this. Um, so it's a really important uh, food source. It's also massively important culturally, um, but it's being directly impacted by saltwater inundation into that freshwater lens. Um, so Live and Learn have been working in, um, in, uh, in Tupelo for a few years now and uh, introduced a really interesting type of wicking bed called a food cube, which is essentially a completely sealed, stackable, shippable, um, uh, modular, metre-by-metre wicking bed uh, produced by a company in Melbourne. Um, we've also tried them in Central Australia. Um, and, you know, no product's perfect, uh, but uh, they do seem to be pretty robust and, and, and work really well. They don't require any gravel substrate. And so that's been a really interesting development in, um, in particularly in Tuvalu, where these can be uh, shipped out 
and then uh, used on site and they're completely sealed from salt water, which is the, the key thing. Yeah, and I think you and I are both familiar with the uh, wicking beds are across the country now, but I, I think 10 or 15 years ago, you and I working together, when wicking beds, Jen Clarsen from the Centre for Appropriate Technology came up with those very clever large wicking beds for Central Australia. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah, they're a really great technology for here where evaporation is one of your key uh, enemies and extreme conditions where you need and poor soils you need a closed that's right environment yeah but i guess um what i found really interesting though about looking at central australia and tuvalu is how they had a much more similar food security context than east timor did um, so both central australia with its central community and a number of remote communities with hundreds of kilometers of desert in between uh, and a high reliance on shop-bought food it was very similar to the pacific a country like Tuvalu has a has a capital and then, you know, like a dozen outlying islands with hundreds of kilometres of ocean in between. And again, a high reliance on shop-bought food. They've both got the same history of being dislocated from the land under a colonial context. Many Tuvaluans were taken to Fiji and, and Kiribati and elsewhere, regained their land rights in the 70s, went back to their, to their own uh, customary land, uh, established uh, depots on each island, uh, much like Aboriginal communities were brought into either mission or government communities with a single depot that's since become a shop. Everybody's highly reliant on the shop and as a result, highly reliant on, on Western foods, high in sugar and, and energy and, and these sorts of things. And so as a result, you're not seeing malnutrition and stunting like you would in East Timor. You're seeing non-communicable diseases like diabetes, heart disease, obesity. It was fascinating to me that places that were as environmentally different as um, Central Australian Aboriginal communities and, you know, Micronesian uh, remote islands, coral atolls like Tuvalu could be so similar in terms of their food security. Yeah, and colonial legacies and disrupting people from... And colonial legacies, absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it. From traditional food ways. It's not just about food security, it's about nutrition security. Mm. And a big part of that challenge in the Pacific and in Mm. middle-income countries is this thing called nutrition transitions, um, which I know you're very familiar with driven by the um, introduction of highly processed, low-nutrient, high-fat, high-sugar foods that displace local healthy diets. And, and it's actually in an environmental sense that it, it's this rapid transition in middle-income countries towards processed and ultra-processed foods that are displacing otherwise really healthy diets. Uh, that's so problematic. So it's so interesting that you see that in Tuvalu uh, re- resonating with Central Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Food stores, if they're not healthy, uh, are not so great. Um, but people absolutely rely on them, however much local food you can produce, particularly in remote contexts and in islands. You, you need your food stores for your healthy staples. And you and I both know Julie Brimblecombe and we've had her on Nourishing Matters and, and she's just, you know, an amazing person who's done a lot to transform the sort of policies and profiles and what's stocked and how stores are operated in remote contexts. Healthy food stores do have a key role to play to ensure food security. And there's been some really strong achievements in Australian remote communities, not not all, but but in many. I'm thinking of Alpa and Outback stores and so on. Would you like to comment on possible differences and changes you've seen between the sort of food profile and health profile of remote food stores, the good ones, and store options or access for Indigenous people in Alice Springs, because you and I both went to a, we were both at a food security um, event in Alice for Alice, not addressing remotes. And uh, Professor Amanda Lee spoke about how Alice is more of a food desert than many remote communities now. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting observation, isn't it? And there was some great work done about two years ago by um, 
local nutritionists here in Alice Springs about the nutrition security profile of the town and particularly looking at food deserts. So I think um, what you're looking at there with food deserts and food bowls is essentially your uh, proximity to healthy food sources. Um, how close are you to them? What are the transport options? And the social and economic assets. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, the social and economic assets too, that's right. So what you would see in a, in a remote community is um, as long as you're living in the community and not on a homeland, which is not always the case, but, but is probably the majority of people in remote communities, you're usually physically fairly close to the shop. You know, as long as it's not uh, 40 degrees, you could probably walk there. So that proximity is there. The economic and, and social access uh, probably more gets measured on, over time, particularly fortnight to fortnight, where uh, people's ability to access food goes up and down depending on um, whether it's their uh, Centrelink week or not. And so you'll see the amount that people eat definitely goes up in the week where they have received Centrelink payments. And in the week where they haven't received Centrelink payments, it definitely goes down. So there's a real pattern there in remote communities. However, in Alice Springs, yeah, you do end up with a very different profile because uh, Alice is geographically bigger um, and many of the um, Aboriginal communities that are part of Alice Springs, for people who don't live in the Northern Territory, uh, these are called town camps. And they're essentially Aboriginal enclaves that were set up on the edge of uh, town. Um, they exist in Alice Springs, in Catherine, Tennant Creek, Darwin, uh, even in some of the larger remote communities, they have separate camps. And they were originally set up in the colonial era as a, as a place to house Aboriginal people from out of town. They're now owned and managed by um, an Aboriginal corporation, uh, but it's still physically the case that they're on the edge of town. And that means that for many of the people living in the, uh, the further away town camps, and actually surprisingly, even some of the more central ones, are still a very long way away from where the food stores are. And if there's no public transport, that can mean their ability to access these stores is, uh, you know, I'm thinking just the regular supermarkets, Coles, Woolworths, these sorts of things. It can be very limited. And so these people are essentially living in food deserts where the only uh, food outlets that they can access nearby might be something like a petrol station or a 7-Eleven. And, you know, we all know the quality of food that's sold in those sort of places. So if that's where you're forced to do your weekly shop, mm. um, then your family's uh, going mm. to, to suffer as a result. Yeah, that's what came through really strongly at that, that event I was just referring to. So what role do you see local food production playing in different remote and development contexts where you work for for reliable food to help preserve local foodways and cope with climate change? I mean, with all the caveats around you know, projects that come and go and people who come and go. What's your feeling or your, your sense of the long-term opportunities for local food production as a key component of food security, perhaps in Central Australia? Look, my gut feeling about this, uh, having worked on it for years, is that uh, we really need to be placing food production as close as possible to the spaces and the places that, that the people we're trying to work with control. And we know that for Aboriginal people, there's an awful lot about their lives that they don't control. That's the, the ongoing context of living in a, in, a, in a colonial culture. If you work in remote Central Australia, it's not even post-colonial. Aboriginal people don't control much about their lives. And um, if we're going to assist them to have more control over the food that they eat, yes, number one strategy is addressing the stores. And that's why so much focus goes on that. And I think that's right. Um, as a horticulturalist, I think it's right that the stores are the number one focus, right? However, if we're going to look at local food production, there's all sorts of models that have been tried. 
you know, community gardens, school gardens, clinic gardens, um, CDP projects, uh, greenhouses, horticulture projects. They've all got um, various merit. Food ladder, protected agriculture. So, yeah, food ladder, exactly. Yeah, yeah, food ladder. That's right. So there's all sorts of um, uh, levels you can work at. And I, I genuinely think that at the end of the day, what will be successful is a mix, so an ecosystem of food production. But my gut feeling is that really there has to be a focus on placing these these projects physically in places where Aboriginal people control them. And so for me, that's primarily as much as you can at their back door. You need to support people to be producing at home, at their back door as much as possible. Now, this is never going to create... Abundance. Uh, ..a completely subsistence. Yeah, that's right. You're never going to 100% feed people from their back door. So we need to acknowledge that straight up and say that's not the bar we're trying to reach. But we are trying to give people the chance to eat healthy fresh fruit and veg in those weeks where they would normally be eating terribly because a Centrelink payment hasn't come through or in those weeks where, um, you know, the shop has not great fruit and veg because the truck hasn't come or because a, a longer supply chain issue is imp impacting on it. Uh, or we're just trying to impact on every week worth of food where we're just increasing the diversity of what they're eating, increasing the diversity of nutrient intake through very local, very backdoor production because it's then very clear who needs to look after this what support they need who gets to benefit from it there's none of this argy-bargy around you know how do you divide up produce from a community garden or a school garden uh, it's also not forcing people to only work through the shop uh, but it, it's giving people a chance to build skills in a, in, a, in a context where they're not under pressure and more in control of their own lives and decisions. So for me, that's got to be a key part of the strategy. Yeah. So in, in Top End Australia, you know, there are some really good staples that many people's backyards have. have. They have papayas, they have bananas, they have yams. And of, of, and of course, they go into the bush and there are yams and sweet potatoes and all the other wonderful bush foods. Mm. For Central Australia, where it's getting hotter and hotter and the growing seasons are getting shorter and shorter, and there are floods, of course, as they've just experienced. What sorts of foods, if I was, you know, what, what, what sorts of foods in your backyard in Tennant Creek would you be growing? Well, are you talking about um, for me in my backyard or working with an Aboriginal family in a remote community growing stuff for them? No, no I'm talking about um, the latter and perhaps think about, perhaps just give us an example or two from Utopia, your work with Utopia. Yeah. Look, um, interestingly, we found one of the crops that was an absolute winner was kale. Uh, and I know that it sounds like, you know, oh, you know, latte sipping inner city types going out to Utopia and planting kale. Exactly. You know, you hippies, you. But the fact is, um, anybody who's grown kale will know, particularly black kale, uh, is a really tough plant. It can handle a lot of stress and still produce a good quality crop. And in fact, you can keep it going for several years. We've seen uh, kale plants growing out in remote communities, I think particularly of, of Rocket Range, uh, which is one of the remote communities in, uh, in the Utopia homelands, where the gardeners there had kale plants that were as tall as I am, probably had a dozen leaves of kale up the top because they picked it the whole way down over the course of two years. And they were adding that to food that they were already cooking. So they're already at home likely to cook a stew that would have uh, probably beef and carrots and potatoes in it. That's a pretty common sort of, you know, meat stew people would cook up at home. If they're chopping up kale and adding it to it, there's an immediate uh, nutritional benefit there. So, yeah, crops like kale were, were really important. Uh, a lot of citrus crops actually were really good. After a while, we worked out that, yeah, the kids do always get in and do always grab the citrus. But if you're involved with the kids or you're involving the kids in the garden, um, after a while, they start stealing it to eat it. 
And you know, if, if that's what they're doing, well, that's kind of the point, right? So that's a that's a good kind of theft at that point. So yeah, really good region for for citrus. Um, yeah, tough crops like kale. Of course, we grow a lot of really common crops that that people would recognise: tomatoes, chilies. In the winter, a lot of leafy greens like spinach and chard. Interestingly, though, what we found was with a lot of crops that we assumed people would know what to do with, people didn't necessarily know what to do with them because they're Western crops. And even though they're quite common crops, we'd see people growing something like chard, which is common enough, but it's not like, yeah, it's not like all of us are growing it and eating it all the time in our culture. And we have gardeners saying, oh, I'm just going to leave that a bit longer and let it get bigger and bigger. Look how big it's getting. Check out how big my spinach is. In the meantime, we can see it's going bitter uh, it's it's not really edible anymore. And the point was, um, we need to help people learn how to cook and, and eat this stuff in just the same way that I actually wouldn't know what to do with a bush banana if you put one in front of me, even though I know it's bush food. Someone's told me it's bush food. I've got no idea what to do with it, right? It's a cross-cultural context. Uh, we need to be uh, open to uh, what people do and don't understand and non-judgmental about it and assisting people to learn the skills they need. Yeah. And fusion foods uh, for the coming climate and what, what will work. Some of it will be introduced and some of it, most of it may well be endemic. What about, I can't not mention your amazing work with Purple House and some of the wonderful garden projects you've done with them because they are an organisation who do exactly what you say. That's right. They grow the food where the people are having their community gatherings or their dialysis and there's a first and foremost focus on bush foods and teas and as for healing and connection and conversation and uh, cultural safety when people come in from out of town to, to visit relatives going through dialysis or, or, or on country where Purple House have their facilities. Would you like to talk a little bit about your work with Purple House? Yeah, certainly. Look, as you say, I think Purple House are just a, a very impressive organisation. Mm, they're rock stars. They are, and they, they really do a good job of um, actually doing the kind of uh, really grassroots uh, community development work in amongst their health work that, that everybody talks about, but um, it's difficult and time-consuming to do. So, frankly, um, a lot of organisations uh, just fail at. It's completely an Aboriginal-owned and run organisation, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, owned by um, Aboriginal board and, and members and the like. And, um, yeah, they, they do well at employing a lot of Aboriginal staff on their team as well. So, yeah, I had the chance to work with them across a few sites, and particularly out in Mount Liebig, mm. where we worked in their aged care centre, um, establishing, uh, I guess, uh, we never used the word permaculture, but it really was uh, permaculture gardens in the sense of making that site uh, more livable as an outdoor space with uh, windbreaks and shade, and then incorporating into that food production uh, there was, I guess, a large shaded vegetable garden where we uh, used a number of materials to really suit the environment in terms of letting winter sun in and keeping summer sun out, misters and the like, to make it a, an engaging place for elderly people to come and sit and garden in. Um, but, yeah, it was about a whole-of-site approach to um, to the aged care centre and to linking into their kitchen program there at the aged care centre. So I, I haven't been out there now for probably 18 months or more and I'm lucky to go. Uh, given the, the trajectory I'm heading in. But um, I know that the staff they have out there recently placed out there, actually an ex-staff member of mine is just an absolute gun at um, vegetable production. So I'm sure they're going ahead uh, really well out there at the moment. So, yeah, really good quality work they do. Um, they really yeah. uh, engage with, um, I guess, all of the nitty-gritty of, of what's needed to make 
these uh, food production systems work for people. It's not just about, can you please just whack a garden in and then uh, they're wondering why a year later it's not working. And they're at places that people frequent and enjoy and respect and love and all those sorts of things. Just thinking of Alice Springs as a town, it is a unique place and there's a real sort of caravanserai between Tasmania, Alice and Darwin of people who are seeking resilience, transition and contributing in all sorts of other ways. And over the years you've seen lots of um, food-related projects and no doubt been involved in them as you know as a person yourself living there i'm thinking of food for alice the local community gardens Hmm. bush food and fruit and veg gardens with community and health programs in alice and more recently food bank has finally opened and that's food relief Hmm. and for many years people have been talking about the dilemma when freight can't get through due to flood and so forth are there any other from your personal experience in your family life any special projects that you've seen happen in Alice Springs that are particular to that island sensibility or that, you know, really strong sense of building resilience that is so alive in Alice which, that you might like to talk about? One in particular is uh, the, the two community gardens that there are now here in Alice Springs and particularly the link between Food for Alice and the community garden. Um, I think that's a really strong program that's been running for, you know, more than 10 years. I arrived here in Alice Springs 10 years ago and the Alice Springs community garden was already up and running Food for Alice was already in its uh, embryonic stage, I guess. So yeah, Food for Alice is a, a program now that uh, takes locally produced produced food uh, from backyard gardeners, from uh, local producers, from the community gardens, and sells it at a weekly market based at the uh, community garden site. And that for a town like Alice Springs, that's actually very important. It's very hard to get locally produced food here because we're so reliant on the national supply chain that supplies Coles and Woolworths and the IGAs. And it actually wasn't all that long ago, the majority of Alice Springs food uh, probably would have been produced locally. It's a really important program, even though the volumes it would be putting through are quite small, really has, I guess, provided a space for people to be able to produce and, and, and access local food. And it's really inspired a lot of people to get into the garden, to produce their own food in, in real bulk quantity and knowing that they can do something with it. If there's a glut that can be uh, sent somewhere, it can be sold, it can be distributed. So I think that's been really important. Um, I think on a volume scale, something like food bank, uh, way bigger than food for Alice is and really important in terms of actual bulk shifting of food and produce uh, from the waste stream uh, to people who really need it. Aboriginal families and, and other poor families in Alice Springs who struggle to access food affordably uh, are able to, to access it through Food Bank. I mean, this is their national model. We all know about it. It's fantastic. It's pretty relevant here in Alice Springs where often the, the poverty is not clear. It's not seen. Food relief, it's never a solution to food security, but it's pretty damn critical. Particularly in a place like Alice, yeah. Pretty critical, yeah, particularly where other systems are failing. Look, and I think as well, uh, if you consider the the, the whole way that um, development is done in Aboriginal Australia, it's essentially been, a, you know, a decades-long rolling emergency. We've never really gotten out of the emergency response to how we work in Aboriginal Australia. We treat Aboriginal people like an emergency. We bring in the level of anxiety that you would bring in in an emergency. We use the kind of approaches you would use in an emergency So that makes for terrible development outcomes in general. However, given that that is the situation that Aboriginal people are put in, something like food bank is really relevant in terms of addressing those critical food shortages, those critical gaps 
in the food system that are created by essentially a deficient development model. There was yet another Commonwealth inquiry into food supply and food prices in Aboriginal communities. I think it was at the end of 2020. I think there's been action on the food stores front and the food stores infrastructure front, which of course is essential. You've got to have functioning fridges and freezers Mm. to do exactly what you've just said, have those staples there. But I think a lot of the development recommendations from many, many groups, I think a lot of people are still waiting to hear back the final report from the Commonwealth on that. It'll be interesting, won't it? Yeah. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We've talked about a lot in a changing climate, obviously a huge driver for adaptation and innovative responses to keep local and regional food production a possibility, not only for disasters, but for every day, but how hard it is when you've got inundation or extreme heat, extreme drought, floods, all the rest. Mm. We've touched on inundation and what people in Tuvalu are doing to grow yams uh, with a new form of wicking bed. We've talked about wicking beds in Central Australia. I've alluded to Food Ladder and the great work Scott McDonald is doing with protected agriculture, which, mm. you know, grows serious amounts of food and can and can cope with extreme heat. Mm. Are there other adaptation strategies and tools you see working in extreme heat conditions or when lands are likely to get inundated and sterilise cropping land? I mean, it's a huge question, I know, but just given the depth and breadth of your experience, are there other uplifting <laughs> stories or options you've seen delivered on the ground? Uh, No, look, I think one of the really interesting uplifting models that I have seen is not directly related to Aboriginal Australia, but I think would absolutely have a a big impact were it to be be more widespread. And uh, I guess this is um, sort of the the arid zone equivalent of the Savory Institute's cell grazing method. Um, which really rehabilitates pastoral land in the in the dry tropics. The problem is it doesn't work in the uh, in the arid zone because you don't have that monsoonal rain that it requires in order to be able to rehabilitate the land after your cattle have been through and stripped it in an intensive fashion. Right. So the relevant approach for the arid zone is um, much more around rangelands restoration through earthworks. And uh, there's a number of people who've worked in this space in Central Australia. I'm thinking of uh, Hugh Pringle and the EMU method, which is the um, ecological management understanding method. And then um, local pastoralists uh, like uh, the now very elderly Bob Purvis from Greenwood Station, just north of Alice Springs, who's really seen as a bit of a pariah in the pastoralist community here. But if you look at his property compared to everybody else's, it is so much greener and on a vegetation level, more productive. Uh, and it's because of the work that he does around earthworks and stocking rates to really rehabilitate his land. And I guess what I see is really relevant here is that if more of the countryside is rehabilitated in that fashion, you don't just get better pastures for cattle. You also get an increase in the local bush foods that are available to local communities and in particular you get them growing closer to those communities there is still a lot of bush food out here in central australia and a very strong uh, traditional food culture in uh, in all of the communities across central australia the challenge they face however is because people and uh, and also to some extent horses are concentrated around these remote communities all the bush foods within a 10 20 50 kilometer radius around those communities are essentially eaten out and people have to go further and further afield to access 
these foods. And camels. And camels, absolutely. Gosh, yeah, in communities where there are camels, um, that's a huge Issue. Tell me about the earthworks. Just, I mean, just paint. A, can you paint a little picture? What, what, what sort of scale and type of earthworks are we talking about? Are you talking about fixing up erosion spots or building contour banks, creating green belts? What, what sort of earthworks? Yeah, definitely contour banks. They're really quite large. Um, so he's using massive D9 bulldozers and the like to to, to make them. And um, if you really get into the technical side of what type of earthworks they are and things like that, he could quite happily argue with you till the cows come home about whether you're doing it right or wrong or not. He tends to make them in the reverse fashion to what most permaculturists have been taught. We're taught to dig from the uphill side and make a mound on the downhill side. Instead, he pushes from the downhill side to make a long, high and wide berm, essentially. He wants to retain all of the soil that he can on the uphill side because he's far more focused on not harvesting the rainwater we're all taught to think oh you harvest the rainwater through these berms he's saying no no no. i'm not harvesting rainwater i'm trying to stop the horizon a silt and soil that's getting washed off my property from disappearing and so he wants to have that silt and soil he wants to have the water distributed across as wide an area as possible he doesn't want it in a trench and then stored underground a swale yeah like a swale would function he wants it in as wide an area as possible so that when it evaporates or soaks into the ground it drops fertile silt and soil over as wide an area as possible. And I, I, I've been to his property. My, my previous boss, Jimmy Cocking, who you know, uh, Anthea, him and I visited Bob Purvis some years ago. And in the middle of a quite a, a hot, dry summer, uh, he was showing us these berms and you'd walk from the downhill up and over the top of one of these berms and you'd look out over the cross, across the top of it and you would think that you're in the top end. It looks like a top end swamp with grasses and lilies and ducks and, and the full bit. Um, so really quite impressive. Very amazing. big scale that you're working at. Yeah, so um, he's preserving soil and recreating wetlands and, yeah. in a sense, creating wetlands where they may not have been them and all the other biodiversity and ecological services that that delivers. And is, it also, is he also doing it to stop dust, to stop, you know, windstorms, dust storms? Uh, look, interesting. I would say he, he never directly said that to me, but what he did say was that when he inherited his property from his father, it was essentially just red dust blowing sideways to his words. And it was like the station's called Wood Green Station. And he said to his dad, I don't know how we can call this place Wood Green Station. Like, <laughs> we've got to actually do something about this, you know. So quite uh, quite radical thinking for his era. Uh, so, yes, in that sense, I think he definitely is addressing dust, but his primary concern is not dust suppression. His primary concern is increasing pasture land in the arid lands, which ultimately will suppress dust. But uh, Which is ultimately preserving soil. That's right, yeah. And he does do a lot of erosion work as well to make sure that other areas on the property that are flowing water aren't eroding away the topsoil he's worked so hard to collect. So a changing climate further highlights as we've just been talking about in various, you know, mixed and diverse ways, um, the importance of traditional food sources, bush foods, plants and animals, caring for country, caring for topsoil, hydration, hi, hi, hydrating the landscape as well. And it all sort of connects to recognising and supporting Indigenous ways of knowing, being, sourcing food and caring for country. Indigenous knowledge systems, First Peoples agroecology, increasing recognition of the importance for greater agrobiodiversity in our food sources, and food sovereignty. All those headlines, key frames, lead us into think about the changing face of permaculture perhaps and the and generational change in that space. What what are your thoughts, Alex, or reflections on the changing face or politics of permaculture? Yeah, I think um, 
Uh, permaculture is at an interesting place at the moment. I've heard David Holmgren previously speak about the various waves of popularity of permaculture that he's witnessed over the years. Um, and I may have the years wrong, but you know, he talks about sort of the early 80s when it really picked up and was getting noticed. Uh, there was an initial wave of interest then. You know, in the, in the mid 90s, there was another wave uh, around the early 2000s and particularly uh, the mid 2000s with peak oil, there was another real wave of interest. And I think when I first came to Alice Springs in, in sort of uh, 2012, it was really on the tail end of that wave. There was still a lot of talk about permaculture, permablitzes, uh, you know, permaculture training courses, these sorts of things. Transition towns, it was all that era of the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Transition towns, yes. What I've really noticed since then, and this is perhaps coloured by my own experience in that I've been working for the Arid Lands Environment Centre for the past 10 years, uh, essentially running a, a, a consulting or, or contracting up with the Environment Centre. And we noticed that um, people were really quite happy to pay for our services and loved the permaculture work we did. Nobody wanted to talk about permaculture. Nobody wanted us to say that we were doing permaculture. Um, so I may be slightly coloured by that, but I think it's reflective of the actual, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a broader shift. Permaculture is in somewhat of an ebb at the moment. I don't see that as entirely a negative thing. Uh, fewer people are talking about permaculture. Um, however, what I notice is that an awful lot of the thinking that permaculture has promoted um, is far more widely accepted in everyday life and in terms of professional thinking as well. I work with agricultural extension programs who talk about working with nature, not against it, but they'd say, oh, we're not permaculture, we're not permaculture. But gosh, working with permaculture, working with nature, not against it, that's permaculture 101, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and there's all those languages and practices and different clusters of expertise and cultural association, but agroecology, regenerative agriculture, some broadacre farmers would argue they're already doing it, some regenerative agricultural people are saying, you're not, you're not in our cultural suite. It's, it, it's just, there's just a proliferation of regenerative practices happening, isn't there? Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, you know, on one level, the fact that it's not labelled permaculture, I don't mind, you know, and neither would most permaculturists. Um, uh, I mean, I did find it really interesting when I first became exposed to things like agroecology and the like, um, before that, I thought permaculture was the only community talking about these sorts of things. And then you find out that, oh my gosh, agroecology has been around for longer than this. And in fact, is really well developed and has been applied for a very long time. And, and you know, uh, probably even much more thorough in terms of its research that it's done on its own results as well. So on that one level, I think permaculture is in an ebb because we just don't use the term as much anymore. But I think there are also some, some concerted pushback against permaculture and the permaculture community and you and I've discussed this a little uh, recently Anthea you were talking about the uh, the agroecology and indigenous communities around the world who are pushing back at uh, permaculture and I find that really interesting I think I get less exposed to it here because it's not necessarily coming from Aboriginal Australians in Central Australia uh, but it is certainly coming from indigenous communities around the world uh, and so you may be able to comment a bit more about this than me Anthea but I do find it really interesting that there's there is this pushback happening. So, I mean, I suppose we were chatting, at, you know, there's the whole sort of international food sovereignty, agroecology, you know, it's the decade of Indigenous languages this year and Glasgow and recognising the need for reforestation and respecting Indigenous knowledges, not just rights, but both hopefully together. So there is this real swell of other voices much stronger not being spoken to but speaking up and speaking at and I think it's really exciting actually. There's a lovely quote um, in Tammy Janus and the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance uh, 
you know, a right in this space, obviously, food sovereignty and the rights of first peoples and the, the Kapasina. There was a lovely uh, post on her Facebook recently that she drew from uh, Indigenous food sovereignty advocates. Ten Indigenous leaders and organisations from around the world have been calling out permaculture and and regenerative agriculture for whitewashing hope, uh, for offering narrow solutions to the climate crisis. And there's a quote from them. Regenerative agriculture and permaculture claim to be the solutions to our ecological crisis. While they both borrow practices from Indigenous cultures, critically, they leave out our worldviews and continue the pattern of erasing our history and contributions to the modern world. While the practices sustainable farming are important, they do not encompass the deep cultural and relational changes needed to realise our collective healing. Pretty difficult to disagree with, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I think what that raises for me is it's it's so interesting how something as um, hopeful and positive as what permaculture intends to be can still remain unaware of its own baggage. And that goes for each of us individually. We all know that as we try to work on ourselves and our own, uh, our own, our own hang-ups and our own privilege and, and all these sorts of things, it's very easy to miss the fact that, you know, permaculture still is a product of a colonial society. The way that permaculture was pieced together has cherry-picked from uh, cultures all around the world to, to come together. What it produced is beautiful. If there's no acknowledgement of, as, uh, as these people are pointing out, that you can't just cherry pick the knowledge out of another culture and think that you're getting the whole worldview and actually developing the connection to place and country and environment that, that those worldviews capture, then, yeah, you're really missing the fact that you are perpetuating a colonial system and a colonial paradigm uh, in the way that you're going about living out permaculture. And coming from a position of privilege in the first place, yeah, often. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's a really interesting thinking parallel to this and, and criticism of permaculture that's going on from within the environmental movement, but also within the permaculture community about the split that the anti-vax movement has created within the permaculture community. And the fact that this really shows that perhaps many of us missed it or perhaps some of us knew but 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 weren't talking about it that there really is a strong individualist streak in permaculture thinking and permaculture fantasy making and I don't mean that in a negative sense no but the anti-establishment sort of exactly but also when anti-establishment turns into self-reliance and then that turns into you know something akin to uh, American survivalist uh, you know anti- anti-everybody else, it's all down to me. And then that turns into anti-vax. I only need to care about me. It's not just about I'm going to reduce my footprint on the environment by reducing how much I source my uh, the support for my life from elsewhere. It then becomes I own, I'm the only one who matters. My rights matter. I'm cutting myself off from everybody. And I think it's been really interesting and surprising and frankly uncomfortable for permaculturists to realise the degree to which there was always the potential for that individualist thinking within permaculture, even though many of us didn't intend that to be the case. It's there and it's coming out now and it's really splitting the permaculture community. So I think, yeah, permaculture faces some really interesting challenges from some really valid uh, critiques at the moment, be it um, food sovereignty movements and, and Indigenous peoples around the world, or be it um, people who are pointing out the negative impacts of individualist thinking in, say, the anti-vax movement. Individualism versus collectivism. Mm. When we met in 2010 at the Permaculture Convergence, Seath Formile, who now really is well known as Guju Guju, a traditional owner from the Cairns region, 
gave a really exciting presentation and workshop about agriculture. Do you remember that? I do remember agriculture, yes. In which he basically presented a very sophisticated model and thinking and way of working that he does with many other people, but basically saying that Aboriginal people have always practised permaculture and it's just a subset of broader ecological agriculture, Aboriginal culture, and he he, he coined the expression agriculture. So I think that's a nice uh, back to where we began sort of uh, anecdote. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It it certainly resonated with me. Any further comments or thoughts you'd like to share? I guess there was one little thought I have as you raised the the agriculture comment there is I do remember sitting on that workshop and it 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 being one of the moments that made me realize how white permaculture is and how focused it is on this fantasy of the homestead or the individual household, right? And particularly things like say the concentric circles of the zones, you know. Now on one level, that's a really useful way of organizing your thinking around the fact that you need access to the to the plants and animals you're going to look after and you should bring the plants and animals that need the most care closest to you, right? So that's 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 very good thinking, right? However, it completely assumes the fact that you own a home that's in the middle of your plot, that you're going to live there the whole time, you're going to sleep there every night, and that you're going to have the kind of plants and animals that are going to need to be moved closer and further away, right? Which is completely different to how um, Aboriginal people think. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the myth of how Aboriginal people used to live um, in traditional life. It's still the case now that Aboriginal people live highly mobile lives, right? So you would still have zones one to five in some kind of theoretical permaculture, Aboriginal agriculture world. They just won't be concentric circles. And I think that's the interesting bit. How do you take the good part of that thinking, break the stuff you don't need, and then sit down and talk with Aboriginal people and go, what does this look like in your life? Where are zones one to five in your life? And you might find that. And how, and how big's the footprint? How big's the footprint? Yeah, that's right, exactly. And how many song lines does it travel over? Exactly, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I find that kind of stuff really interesting. And I do recall that workshop and it was a very early moment for me of going, oh, I think even the shapes we draw on the page are just completely a product of, of the colonial society that I'm part of. Thank you for that, Alex. That's very insightful. <laughs> Um, Any call-outs or suggestions of how listeners can get behind the current work that you're doing with Nakao or island communities who are really struggling with climate change and adaptation? Are there people can head to the Nakao website? Are there particular projects or fundraising drives or, you know, what would you like to share to spread the word and build build the cause for the work you're currently doing? Uh, Well, for Nakao, uh, yes, please go to the website, nakao.org, and you can see the great work that Nakao has been doing for a long time there with uh, local Indigenous rangers in the Pacific. I'd love to say, please buy some of our carbon credits, but the truth is we've sold them all. (laughs) So uh, we'll we'll have further issuances in the future, uh, but... um, to be honest, uh, you, you're possibly better off trying to uh, buy from a, a retailer. We tend to, to sell to the market more often than do individuals. Um, but I would say, if you are going to engage in that, please look for high quality credits that really put an emphasis on the co-benefits to communities, that really protect Indigenous rights, that support local livelihoods. Um, because if you are essentially buying the lowest price credit you can get, all you're buying is a plantation somewhere, all of the ethical conundrums that come with that. So a higher quality credit has all these co-benefits and it costs more, right? 
but um, it's something you can trust. So anyway, that's a whole other discussion, but you know. We might have to have that conversation in, in, in dialogue with some of the really great Indigenous carbon markets and organisations that are happening in the top end. <laughs> Another day, yeah, exactly. But I mean, other things you could do, go and look at Live and Learn Environmental Education who, who own NACAO, either one of those two organisations you could make a donation to. And I would say the other great thing you could do is Go and buy yourself a copy of the Tropical Permaculture Guidebook that uh, Lockie and Ego Lemos and the permaculture team have been working on for nearly two decades. It's such a wealth of information and you'll get heaps out of it and they will definitely use the funds, the proceeds from the book for a very worthy cause. So that's a great thing you can do to get involved. Well, that's a lovely call out. I've been speaking with Alex McLean, one of Australia's quite deep achievers and doers in community development for people, food security and climate adaptation. Alex, thank you so much for your time and for what you do. It's been a pleasure. It was really good. Thanks, Anthea. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.